Hello and welcome to the Cloisterbell podcast. This week, Rob and I discuss the two-part adventure from 1965, The Rescue. The TARDIS Cloisterbell. Imminent disaster. The Cloisterbell? Yes. What's that? Well, it's a sort of communications device reserved for wild catastrophes and sudden calls to man the battle stations. That's the cloister bell. Don't worry about that for now. It's not really terribly significant. The cloister bell? Oh, no. Welcome back, everybody. Um, hello to all our dear listeners, and hello to my wonderful co- uh, co- co-roast? Co-host, um, <laughs> Rob. Hi, Rob. Co-roast. It's gonna yeah, be one hi. Of, yeah, it's going to be one of those podcasts where I am uh, a... My uh, ability to speak seems to completely fly out of the window. Yeah. To one of the to the point where one of our dear listeners <laughs> thought I was drunk uh, during uh, my review for Mummy on. M- I see it's happening again. Mark- Mummy on the Orient Express. Mark Cockrum. He knows his stuff. Sleep more, right? He sounds like he's been on the brown ale. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't know what was going on in that podcast, and it seems I've seemed to be having a repeat of it. My ability to speak uh, seems to be going out the window. Which is wonderful for a podcast. Anyway, yeah. how's it going, Rob? Good. Uh, long time no speak, or or not necessarily. <laughs> so, what, what do we say? <laughs> oh, you've spoiled the illusion now. Yes, dear listeners, for the first time ever, we've actually been a bit professional, um, uh, and we've recorded two podcasts back to back. Do you know what they call that, that name? No, what? A batch. Yes, great. Um, if anyone, if anyone, for people who listened to the last podcast and didn't get to the end of it, they'd be going, "What the hell are they talking about? What's so funny about the word batch?" Stop saying it. <laughs> it's the podcast's keyword, batch. Okay. Anyway, um, in our previous podcast, uh, Rob mentioned. Uh, the fact that he uh, bought some, I was going to say food, but it's its really stretching the definition of the word, um, which I described as an absolute abomination and makes me feel physically sick. But uh, we thought we'd keep it a mystery of what on earth we were talking about. So, Rob, do you want to okay. uh, yeah. review? Well, we'll be talking about that on the Who Can Convince You podcast as well. I have no idea if that's out yet or if it's if it's out next week I just don't know so you might have heard about it you might not have uh, I'm going to go get it out of the fridge two seconds you keep them busy <laughs> so so listeners what happened was just out of the blue Rob uh, sent me a whatsapp message of a video of him opening this this thing uh, right. it was a tin and it was it, yeah so you've got to you've got to keep it refrigerated and you've probably got to eat it within three days um, so Three days thinking, to eat all that, and I was thinking that I'm going to have to bag it up and put it in the freezer. Right. Okay. Okay. So it's um, Rico's premium nacho cheddar cheese sauce in a tin, three three point one kilos. It's really heavy. So you you get a tin open, now you open it, and it's the it's the consistency of um, close your ears, Liam. It's like custard. So. Um, <laughs> and it's um, what do you do with it? So you got to empty it into a saucepan um, f- on the stove for ten fifteen minutes, or just pop it in the microwave for like, two or three minutes. And it's done. Um, pour it on your nachos. It's very orange. Like yeah, I mean, un- no food should be that orange. Mm. Even an orange is not that orange. It's just yeah. It, uh, yeah. <laughs> The Liberto family has been in business for more than a hundred years. The great great grandchildren are now hard at work making the most delicious delicious cheese sauces. Well, that's the thing. Uh, I mean, I'm made just judging in it off the of, USA. Yeah, I mean, when you look at it, you can tell us. Oh, it's from America. You don't say. Um, I'm going to put it on the website as well. I'll <laughs> I'll embed a tweet. So if you go to cloisterbellpodcast.com forward slash the rescue. Um, scroll down and I'll I'll embed a tweet there 
and maybe a video of the opening. <laughs> yeah, I mean, jeez. I mean, I'm just going off the appearance. I mean, the appearance is just yeah. awful. Actually, I'm just going to go put it back in the fridge before it goes off. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be surprised if that ever goes off. I mean, it's clearly not natural. You'd probably be able to keep that uh, stored next to a radiator and it still wouldn't Hi. go off. Yeah. I'm back. I, I did buy some grated mozzarella as a backup. Ah, proper cheese. I mean, I'm just going off I'm just going off the appearance of the thing. It may actually be really delicious. I mean, have you tried any of it yet, Rob? Yeah, so I had a little bit it it almost smelt a little bit like the Odeon nachos. <laughs> but it was just pure orange. It had no you know, it didn't ha I think it has jalapeno peppers in the ingredients, but you wouldn't tell because it's so processed and it's just orange. And um, you can it tastes all right, but not. It, I think it's missing something. Cheese. <laughs> it's missing cheese. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> With some cheese. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, yeah, you said. We're thinking, do we put it in a flask and take it to the cinema? <laughs> I think you'd be in the news for some reason. Just cause a, uh, you went to the cinema and caused a terrorist attack by uh, by chemical weapon. Yeah. But it, it, at the minute, if I'm having a cheap day at the cinema, uh, I just I just order the cheese and take in my own nachos. So I have this really awkward moment at the, at the food stand where I just get a tray... With the cheese. <laughs> right, okay. I'm blatantly sneaking in some Doritos. No one cares, um, my Robert's fine. No one cares. Yeah, but but now I'm going to be going up, like saying, just the tray, please. <laughs> <laughs> for, for, for I brought my own <laughs> malted cheese. <sighs> anyway, well, uh,. I will sample it properly and we'll talk about it in depth on on the Who Can Convince You pod. Uh, yeah, where, where I will be vomiting. Take one for the team. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anyway. Um, I don't know what I would have to eat in competition to, to match the levels of that. But uh, anyway, yeah. Uh, interesting purchase, Rob. Thanks. <laughs> um, it only cost £5. As much as that? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> anyway I mean as I said I'm just criticising it for for it's appearance and the fact that it just looks dodgy it may be really really nice <clears throat> yeah not too bad um, one thing I've been uh, one thing I've done recently is um, I've read the first two the first two uh, the first three Target books oh um you know, so, so so made me laugh. You know this thing of just criticizing adults for for reading uh, the, the Harry Potter books. Adults shouldn't be reading Harry Potter books anyway. I'm just going to read these Doctor Target Doctor Who Target novelizations. Doctor Target. Doctor Target. Anyway, um, so yeah, and I've actually really enjoyed them. Uh, I, w- I will actually be balancing it out by reading uh, reading proper adult books, but they, they were really enjoyable. So this is Doctor Who and the Daleks. Um, which was written by David Whittaker. Doctor Who and the Zarby. Yeah. Uh, it was written by Bill Strutton, who actually wrote the, the television uh, script for The Web Planet, on which that one's based. And Doctor Who and the Crusaders. Again, written by David Whittaker. Um, and I really enjoyed them. They're, they're interesting because with Doctor Who and the Daleks, because at that point it was originally intended that each novelization would be able to be read on its own. So, what David Whittaker does is he opens up the book basically with his his own version of the very first episode of An Unearthly Child. But it's not a carbon copy, it's very much his own thing. So, um, you still have the Doctor, Susan, Ian and Barbara, but Barbara is a private tutor. She doesn't work in a school. And uh, she was tutoring Susan and was driving Susan to her grandfather and they have a car crash. Um, Ian gets involved trying to, uh, 
trying to uh, find Susan following the car crash. And, you know, the, there's this whole thing about the fact that there's a strong smell of petrol. Petrol's obviously leaking. Uh, it could cause a massive explosion. Uh, the doctor... Um, the doctor arrives and then there's the whole thing of trying to get into the TARDIS so it mirrors a little bit of what's happening in that very first episode but you know David Whittaker does his own thing and the whole novelization is narrated in first person as if it's from the perspective of Ian ah right and it's uh, it's actually a really interesting read given how what David Whittaker does with his you know with the changes that he does and how we're hearing every we're hearing everything from Ian's perspective and it has a little bit of an a grit to it it's uh in terms of the storytelling it's really interesting so if anyone's interested in, in reading the tog novelizations i definitely recommend that one uh doctor who and the zarby which is inspired by it which is a novelization of the web planet which is a story you really like rob isn't it yeah i get i uh, completely understand why people hate it no i mean i really like it as well um and i think it's a really interesting story so but the problem is bill strutton this was the novelization that I struggled reading because I found it a little bit dull because Doctor Who and the Web Planet is a really creepy, atmospheric story. And I don't think that tra- translates particularly well in how Bill Strutton has written his story. H- having said that, though, one of the problems is... is cause so, so with the Daleks uh, novelization, as I said what was interesting about it is what David Whittaker did with the changes in telling that story. Bill Strutton sticks too closely to his own script, uh, which I can understand why that would appeal for the original readers because they wouldn't have been able to rewatch The Web Planet. But from our perspective, because we can, it just comes across as a little bit dry. So there were six episodes, there's six chapters. Mm. Each chapter is... You know, mirrors the. I get that. Because yeah, it's like when I read novelizations of films, mm. the bits that stand out are the bits that are so different. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Deviate, um, which is like an interesting, like, especially novelizations of of films that were novelizations that were written in pre-production mm. kind of thing. It's interesting because it's like early concepts and things, or in some cases, it's just another take on the story. But yeah, I like when it's a bit different. Yeah. Um... Actually, Bill Strutton does add something um, to the the novelization, which isn't on the script, uh, which isn't on the televised story, which is um, uh, sexism uh, with how Vicky and Barbara are portrayed. So it does have that in its favour for something different. Um, Just the way that uh, the Doctor and Ian patronise Barbara and Vicky and all the rest of it so, so, so there's that as being a bit different which is but isn't great and then the mm. third one which is Doctor Who and the Crusaders which is a novelization of my favorite William Hartnell story and that's really strong David Whittaker is novelizing novel novelizing his own story and again um he just some he restructures it um so you're not following it beat to beat from the televised story. It's, uh, it has its own structure because it's in a different form. So that mm-hmm. works. It makes it much more readable. Um, some characters are removed and formed into one, so it's a bit more streamlined. But that was really strong, so I like that. So, um, But I'm done with the target no- novelizations for now. But yeah. it's onto the adult books. Onto the adult <laughs> books. But... Um, <laughs> but um, but I will be going back and read because it's been actually really delightful. And as I said, um, it's been enjoyable reading them from the perspective of what was changed and that these new elements and making its yeah. own thing. So I enjoyed that. Yeah, it's, uh, that's something worth checking out. Yeah. Hmm. Um. Before we get on to the main review of what we're talking about today, is there anything else you want to talk about? Or mm, I don't think so. I think we kind of covered it last week, which was an hour ago. <laughs> which was, yeah. <laughs> From our perspective. Tea, coffee, Star Trek. Yeah. Um, tea and coffee. Ooh, I don't think I've got anything more to add to that. Um, do you drink much coffee ever? Now and again, I, I have got a bit of a taste for it i prefer tea but the thing is because uh for years you know when you know you got people who are really into their coffee and they would always go oh you can't get a decent cup of coffee in this country and go oh whatever you snobs and then 
when I first went to America, um, which was early 2014, um, it was really difficult getting uh, getting tea there. Like you would, you would. And this is March. This is winter. You would order a really? tea at the hotel, and right. they would give you an iced tea. And you go, no, 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 oh no. Oh my god. Yeah. No, no, no. I want, I want hot tea. It completely flummoxed them. <sighs> so in the mornings when we're going down for breakfast, uh, because uh, our days were fully jam packed and a lot of sort of going here and there and everywhere, um, needed a big. Coffee, uh, caffeine boost and I went right I'm just going to have to deal with it I'm going to have to deal with drinking the coffee and it was really nice uh, so I ended up getting a taste for coffee then I went alright oh, okay must be a change of taste buds I must really like coffee then I came to Britain and started ordering coffee and said that coffee's disgusting Yeah. so then I started to get yeah you can't get a really it's, to get a decent cup of coffee in, uh, in the UK is actually quite difficult yeah so um, a few things different in America not only I guess they don't have tea. It's a big thing. Mm. They don't have freeze-dried coffee. Yeah. Um, it's all fresh ground coffee. They don't have kettles. So what they do is, if they're having a cup of tea, they fill the mug with water. They put it in the microwave <laughs> till it's hot enough. This is a real thing. No, no, I know it's a real thing. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah. <laughs> they don't. They don't have wash basins as well. Like like a plastic dish. A lot of them are like, "What the hell is that plastic dish in your, in your sink?" Yeah, but the, but I get that because I don't have that. All oh, right, okay. <laughs> yeah, but but I know what you mean. I mean, I don't go into when I've seen it, seen it in other people's houses. Keeping in mind when I've been invited, I'm just walking into people's houses and checking their sinks. What on earth is that? <laughs> what the hell's that? Uh, <laughs> I don't I don't find it an odd thing. I just yeah, but yeah. Right. They, well, they they wash the dishes under the tap a lot, don't they? Like they just wash and go. Like you know what? What I'll do, I I will I will rinse stuff under the tap and then I put it off to one side. And then I'll wash it in the mm-hmm. in the dish. Yeah, yeah. Um, but in America, it's like I guess a lot of us seem to like. There's probably an old-fashioned notion of like the hot water would run out in the loft or something. <laughs> Whereas they probably all in America, I guess they all have um, like gas boilers. That just heated up instantly. I don't know. And they don't, they don't run out of hot water, do they? <laughs> I'm not saying I've got a gas boiler, I'm not, but you know, like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, people would run out of water, wouldn't they? Yeah, hot yeah. Water. Well, I remember sort of like back in the day, I mean, I'm only 34, geez, but it makes sound yeah. like proper old. But um, yeah, having to put the heating on and then wait half an hour before you even got a little yeah. bit of hot water. Yeah. <clears throat> I never had radiators grown up. Oh, did you not? You did. You know um, where I grew up, mm-hmm. and because it was a Victorian like masonette, there was no central heating. We just had like functioning fireplaces. Oh right, okay. And hot water bottles. It was pretty cold. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sounded. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I miss fireplaces. Mm. Yeah, there's something just wonder. Yeah, want to get rid of something? Put it in the fire. <laughs> <laughs> Top tip: don't put batteries in. Are you talking from experience? Yeah. Right, okay, what happened? When was this? What? Oh, I was a kid, I think I put a watch battery in the fire, then it exploded and hit me in the cheek. <laughs> <laughs> Did it hurt? A little bit. Yeah. Lucky escape. Yeah, okay. Because remember when uh, batteries actually had, you know, these were ha- actually had acid in them. Yeah, so well, when batteries ran batteries out off. and you didn't quickly t- you didn't take them out and you just left them there then acid would just leak and corrode everything yeah <laughs> many toys <laughs> were destroyed that way just leaving batteries green and burnt yeah, yeah. green and burnt <laughs> <laughs> anyway okay so this week's uh, point of discussion was uh, again it was coffee tea and, and coffee and then it was uh, wash basins and, uh, and, and heating and uh, battery acid yeah um, I'm quite fond of the film Batteries Not Included. What's your thoughts on that? Oh, I haven't seen that film in years. That was one of my all-time favourites as a kid. For me, it's like a very early memory. That's why I love it. Yeah, I remember... It's the kind of thing that would be on at my grandma's, like, occasionally. Yeah. Yeah, I have very fond memories of that. I loved that film a lot. I just thought it was... I just thought it was great. And um, it was that thing... For, uh, when did it originally come out? Was it the mid to late 80s? 
felt like it. I'm going to say, it feels like it feels like it came out in 1985. Hang on, wait a second. I'm going to Google this. I think technologically, I don't think it's a like a 70s thing. No, no, definitely not. But uh, oh, there we go. Battery's not included. Oh no, came out in 1987. It's as wow. old as us. I thought it was really old when we saw it. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, yeah, because I thought it was, I thought it was just slightly older than we were. But no, it came, it came out December 1987. Right. So we're older than Battery's not included by a few months. Um, but yeah, I remember thinking that was a really good film, and just you know the whole thing about you know getting the community together and telling the big corporations where they can stick it. Yeah. Cute aliens that hovered around and things. You never get good films on the telly anymore, like Batteries Not Included, Short Circuit, Inner Space. Do you remember that? Where he shrinks down. Inner Space? No, I'm not. Yeah. What's that? Is that what it's called? You know when the guy shrinks down in the little submarine goes inside the guy? Oh, you're not talking about... Isn't that called Fantastic Voyage? From the yeah. 50s or something? Early no, no I'm, talking about, I'm talking about an 80s one. <laughs> I, know, I, I do know the one you're talking about, actually. Right, okay. Hang on. So what? what did, what's, right, what's the one you're called? What's the one you're on about called? In a space where the guy gets injected into the wrong person. He's in a tiny submarine. He's, he's shrunk and he's inside his body. But then this other guy goes in and this evil guy in another submarine and then he's battling him inside and it's making the guy all crazy on the outside world. And then one of the villains, I think, gets shrunk to the size of a, like, a midget. And, and uh, it gets a bit silly. No, I don't think I've never. It's, no, I don't think I've seen that one. But yeah, uh, looking at it now, it's Ooh, got Dennis Quaid, Mark Shaw, Meg Ryan in it. And again, that came out in November '87. Yeah, I thought that was a good one. Oh, I need to check that out sometime. Don't think I've seen Flight it. of the Navigator. Seen that? Sorry, you've seen Flight of the Navigator. I think I have. I certainly recognise the title. Yeah, I thought that was a good one. Google <laughs> that again. <laughs> Flight of the Navigator. Oh, yes, I remember that. Yes, I definitely saw that. Yeah. Come to think of it, wasn't there like a robot dog in that? Yeah, I think I think so. I remember um, talking about, you know, movies which uh, don't get broadcast. I remember being very young and they showed... You know, this was back in the days because they wouldn't. I don't think they would really show it now. The Blob. This was the original one with, with the, the original. Yeah, I love the Blob. Uh, and I remember just thinking, "Oh, that film was so good," and I remember it really well. And I just thought it was great. And I hadn't seen and it. It ended on a question mark as well. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then a few years back, because um, I was talking about it with my family, he went, yeah, yeah, that was a good film, and you never see that on the television anymore, yeah. Anyway, uh, uh, it came out on Blu-ray and got it as a Christmas present, and we all watched it. My God, it's crap. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you look at it going, Steve McQueen playing a teenager, really? <laughs> I don't know how old he was, but he clearly wasn't a teenager. He must have been in his late 20s or something, just insane. Yeah. It's so dull. Like we're watching this going, I don't remember this film being this boring. There's a lot of You know what? It's just now that you mention it, there's only so many bits I can remember. Um it, it lands, goes up the stick, eats the guy. Yeah. Eats more people, gets bigger. Then you got the famous scene in the um Diner? Uh no, cinema. Is it? Cinema, right, okay, yeah. And then the freeze it. Yeah. And then the dump it. And then who knows? <laughs> and that's the end of the film. Um yeah, you remember all the interesting stuff with the blob, you know, and interesting in a sort of like a, you know a B movie fun kind of way. What you don't remember is all the bits in between, and there's a lot of those where it's just people talking a lot. All oh, right, and I'm not saying what you've got a problem with dialogue scenes, Liam. No, yeah. no, no, no. This is just really pointless dialogue which just goes on and on and on, and it was just going wow. Didn't I'm not surprised they don't show this. I've never seen the 80s remake. Uh, I want to, and from what I can gather, that's one of those occasions, you know, when they they remake something, you go, yeah, that's a a really good film. Yeah. Mm, I wonder. You know what um, John Carpenter's just said this week? 
he'd like to make the thing too. Really? Yeah. No, I think that's a mistake. Because actually, the thing from another world, the 50s B-movie, is actually Mm. quite decent. I mean, it's not scary, certainly by today's standards, but it's a decent film in terms of, you know, it's a B-movie with reasonably good production values. Yeah. It's written quite well. I think it holds up. I think it's quite a decent B-movie. And then John Carpenter comes along and re- and remakes it and goes, well, what we're going to... There's nothing else like it, is there? Yeah, and it's just fantastic because you've got all the practical effects which are really good. The the sense of claustrophobia and atmosphere and paranoia. Yeah, uncertainty and fear, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's pretty good. Yeah. And the whole scene with the blood test in it, that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. That, they're all tied down. Yeah, that's... that's. A... If, if nobody has seen John Carpenter's The Thing, go and watch it. Yes, I, yeah, I strongly recommend it. It's really good. Holds yeah. up incredibly well. Um, they did do... Uh, they did do a prequel, also called The Thing. I think it came out um, probably in the past 10 or 15 years. Uh, so it was like a modern reimagining slash prequel... Uh, obviously wasn't as good it was about you know what because um, of um, oh, what's his name uh, why is the name gone Kurt Russell's character mm. uh, Mac um, I can't remember he does he are they actually Swedes or Norwegians he get he get he himself gets them mixed up Oh, yeah, saying, damn Swedes, they're Norwegians. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So it's the Norwegian team. Uh-huh. Um, that is hunting the dog, uh, the wolf at the beginning. It's about kind of their story. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think I watched it on stream and it, it was a bit naff. <laughs> oh, right, okay. <laughs> Anything else? No? Uh, no, I suppose we'd better crack on with Doctor crack Who. Crack on? Yeah, I suppose. <laughs> Right. So anyway, uh, as we said at the very beginning of this podcast, um, podcast, that... Um, Propacast. Oh, I don't know. My, my <laughs> words fail me sometimes, <laughs> Rob, as we've established. Um, we're reviewing uh, the two-parter from 1965 called The Rescue. Uh, I've got in my hands uh, a book called Doctor Who, The Handbook. Uh, <laughs> the first Doctor... So there were William Hartnell years, 63 to 66. It was originally published in 1994, Virgin Publishing. And I'm just going to read the plot synopsis. <clears throat> Arriving on the planet Dido in the 25th century, the time travellers come upon a crashed spaceship from Earth. Its two occupants, a paralysed man, Bennett, and a young girl, Vicky, are living in fear of the posing figure, Coquillian, <laughs> a native of the planet, whose people have apparently killed the other members of the human expedition. However... It does not take the Doctor long to deduce that Corquillian is in fact Bennett in disguise. It was actually he who killed the others in order to conceal an earlier murder he had committed on the ship. Confronted by two of the humanoid Didoans, whom he thought he had completely wiped out, Bennett falls from a high rock ledge to his death. On discovering that Vicky's father was amongst the murdered crewmen and that, consequ- and that consequently she is now an orphan, the Doctor offers her a place aboard the TARDIS, which she gratefully accepts. <clears throat> So the cast and crew, William Hartnell plays Doctor Who, William Russell plays Ian Chesterton, Jacqueline Hill plays Barbara Wright, Maureen O'Brien plays Vicky, and Ray Barrett plays Bennett slash Coquillian. It was directed by Christopher Barry, written by David Whittaker, produced by Verity Lambert, the music was by Tristan Carey, and the production design was by Raymond Cusick. Um, A lot of exciting stuff in just two episodes. Yeah, which um, it was very unusual for um, Doctor Who to do two-parters. I think there's only, in classic Doctor Who, uh, I think there's five. You've got this, the Santoran experiment, and then the three that you get in the Peter Davison era. Mm. Um, So, yeah, I think that... Oh, uh, The Edge of Destruction. I forgot about that one, uh, which was in the first series, and this is in the second series. Um, So, yeah, it was quite unusual, and, yeah, a lot does take place within the space of just two episodes, which is uh, 50 minutes uh, in Classic Doctor Who. Um, We start off with what I think is quite a fun scene in the TARDIS. You know, the TARDIS lands. We do cut... so. Basically, we see the TARDIS land, and then we cut to the the spaceship with uh, this new character, Vicky. 
Um, and she's terribly excited because she thinks that uh, a rescue ship has landed because they've been stranded on the planet for quite a while and it's only her and this man called Bennett who is apparently paralysed struggles to move Uh, of course we know that what she thinks is a rescue ship is the TARDIS Um, so then we cut to the TARDIS and um, at this point of Doctor Who I think the, the two important writers were David Whittaker and Dennis Spooner. Um, you know, they started off as, as writers and script editors, or story editors, as they were known then. Um, and they were very good at crafting uh, really good, engaging stories with a lot of threat, and actually a lot of... And, and they, they would always work in humour. And I think The Rescue is quite a atmospheric, dark story... Uh, and really, the the only scene which uh, provides real levity is when we see uh, the Doctor has fo- fo- uh, fallen asleep whilst the TARDIS has landed. Uh, Ian mm. and Barbara waking him up, and that whole thing of you know, with uh, the thing that cracks me up was Barbara just going, "The trembling stopped," and the Doctor just going, "I'm so pleased you feel better." <laughs> no, not me, the ship. You know, it's just it's just really wonderful. It's generally funny. I just think it's great. Uh and that and the whole reaction of uh you know, the, the doctor yawning his head off and, you know, being He was gonna go for a bath. Was he? Yeah, you know when he woke up he said, Oh, I'm all sticky, I'll go for a bath. Oh yes, yeah, yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he's he does sleep and he bathes. Yes, he does, which is which is uh, good to know. Especially as he never changes his clothes. <laughs> um so you know, I like all that, and it was great uh, coming back to uh, in, uh, this far back in Doctor Who because I love the William Hartnell era, but it's been a while since I've you know watched any of this period, and it was just really nice to see William Hartnell playing the Doctor. He's a much better actor than I think people sadly give him credit for. He was just tremendous, and you know, seeing William Russell and um, uh, Jacqueline Hill. It's just great to see, yeah. you know, just great. He doesn't take a back seat in this one, does he? No, no, he doesn't. In fact, one of the things that I really like about how this story is written is how everyone has plenty to do. Um, you know, you know, Barbara's threatened and then we think that um, this character, Quillian, uh, has has killed her, but actually she survives. She's the first one of the TARDIS crew who, who encounters Vicky. You know they have some you know interesting interactions. Mm. Um, the Doctor and Ian are close and facing a lot of peril. Um, and then you have got this character Bennett, and you know he's this grumpy curmudgeon and all the rest of yeah. it. So he was annoyed at the beginning, like she's just telling him facts, like this is happening. <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's a ship nearby. Yeah, it's. Uh, I kind of see where she was coming, where he was coming from, though, because she's going about how it's a rescue ship, and he's just going, "No, it's clearly not." I know what you mean. Uh, he could have been. He could have handled it a bit better, the, the grumpy sod. But um, as we established, he's not a particularly nice character. Uh, no, not at all. Yeah. Um, so Kaquillian mm. is not one. It's like uh, it's just a mask. You can tell that's not a real monster, but like that was in actuality just a mask. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so the and the thing is because i remember when uh when i first watched this because it was on a it was in a double video pack uh i bought it second hand at the time out uh market uh with my grandparents um uh it was the rescue and it was the romans the romans being the story that immediately follows this and i remember when i was first watching it i didn't mind uh i you know it was from 1965 i thought it was a good design Yes, yeah, and the hands as well. They were, and the hands and the feet were quite creepy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I just accepted that that's, you know, this was a monster and that's what it was supposed to be. So actually the reveal that uh, Coquillian is actually Bennett, it was just like, <gasps> no. Uh, yeah. Just thought it was really good. I mean, it's sort of funny uh, just going, so in reality, the costume is supposed to look really realistic. And I think for a long time, just going, oh, that's clearly preposterous. But now we live in a world of people who cosplay and they put in a lot of detail and a lot of hard work in making this stuff look realistic. So so now we've come out the other way where, um, you know, uh, the villain is a cosplayer. Yeah. 
you know so um and i you know did you did you remember much of the story before coming i mean had you seen it before you know what yeah oh yes of course and i'd i'd given it a good watch when the dvd came out Mm -hmm. um but i'd it kind of gone out of my mind and i'd forgot about the little twists which was nice Ah, right, okay. I'd vaguely remembered, and and it kind of came to me as it happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was it's a bit of a fresh take on it. Yeah, it was good. Yeah, actually, because enjoyed it. Uh, I've got the DVD of it, and it's signed by Maureen O'Brien. Ah, right, good. Yeah, because uh, when we went to the second Doctor Who convention back in twenty fifteen, uh, yes, um, Maureen O'Brien was there, and I, d- I don't think she does that many Doctor Who conventions, so it was kind of like, wow, she, you know, she's there. And I remember um, she was lovely and everything like that, but I, I remember thinking, I was just, a, I remember thinking, you're not enjoying it, are you? So anyway, uh, when it came to the, the signing, I just asked, you know, are you are you enjoying the convention? And she just looked mm-hmm. at me, posed for a while, and she went, well, as much as I can. <laughs> Oh God! Just went fair enough. You're being honest. I totally understand. You don't yeah. need to be here. Um, but anyways, you know, maybe that's because she's not like a seasoned convention goer, or I don't know. Well, maybe I mean because well, I totally sympathise because as you know, Rob, I had I had difficulties with that convention. Yeah, you like tell me about it. Yeah, it just... I think that's why she looked at me when just something yeah. tells me that I can I can be honest with you. Because... Oh, well, that. That's like the time when that was that same weekend where we went over to Tom Baker, um, Colin Baker, mm. and he said, uh, "How how are you finding it?" And I said, "Oh, it's been a long weekend." And he was like, "Oh, tell me about it." <laughs> <laughs> and then we just parted ways. <laughs> yeah, but the, the, the depression. There was no one else that. around. Why didn't I talk to him more? Yeah. yeah, I think I think I'd I'd approach it differently now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just yeah. you know. I think being... I had I didn't have much confidence in myself as a fan because I thought I'm a little bit out of my depth because a lot of these people are like hardcore fans. Mm-hmm. And but since we've been doing the podcast, when we started it, I felt a little bit underqualified to even be doing it. All right, okay. But now, but now I've come to learn that all the other podcasters are just normal people like us who who know a lot about the show in their own way. Some ways they don't. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't. You don't have to know everything. <laughs> no, to be a fan. At this point, you know, you just relax. It's just something that you like. You don't need to know everything. And I think, yeah. I think if I knew everything about Doctor Who, I, <laughs> oh, I find that idea yeah. very depressing. Actually, but yeah, yeah, uh, just be relaxed about yeah. it. Yeah, I do remember some arrogant fans in the queues, like, mm. oh, you don't even know who this is. <laughs> really, I don't remember. No, that. Not, no, not like to that. me. To each to each other. And I remember thinking, oh, for God's sake, I'll just have an F off. <laughs> like, of course he doesn't know who it is. It's someone from the 60s. This kid's 20. <laughs> you know, give him a break. <laughs> Educate him. Tell It's just arrogance. Oh. Uh, right. I, I don't, I, I, honestly, I don't remember that. But there, yeah. were, there were some... I mean, I think I mentioned it in a previous podcast, but there, there was... When it was the question and answer session, because uh, Sarah Sutton, who played Nissa, was was there. And the fact that someone thought it was perfectly reasonable to ask why she was wearing glasses because they made her look, and I quote, terribly old. I remember telling you, going, what the... is going on? <laughs> she handled it really well, but I thought... I thought... Yeah. I couldn't believe that. I mean, so, the way some of the fans were going on, it yeah. was atrocious. That, that's what I was talking about, like a, like a seasoned convention go like of, of the guests, because they obviously know mm-hmm. the kind of shit that they have to put up with. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, yeah, the way that some people were, were going on was like, and I ended up getting quite a perverse pleasure out, especially when it was a question and answer session, so <laughs> making a point of not asking anything. Not talking about Dr. Yeah, Who. just not ask. And it was great because, um, oh, I've forgotten her. Is it Jacqueline King? Yes. She, who played uh, Donna's mother in uh, the David Tennant era. Oh, um, yes. Yeah, I think that's her name. But yeah, anyway, really good actress. And, uh, I, yeah, we got to speak to her near the bar, didn't we? We got some some autographs. Yes, well, the fact, and I think it was after that because I, because she was talking about you know how she was very proud of her time on Doctor Who, but her big passion was the theatre, 
Monara, okay. So then I asked her a question about her theatre work and what was her favourite thing. And this got... And she lit up and she was really passionate about it. It was great to see that, you know, her passion as an actress coming through and she was talking about it. And, you know, her her favourite screenwriter and... uh, Sorry, um... Yeah, uh, playwriter. And she was talking about that and a certain production that she... It was great to see. And then I think because... We talked about something other than Doctor Who. <laughs> you know, she was a bit more comfortable. And it was funny because when it was, uh, when it was Daphne Ashbrook as well, because she was there as one of the guests, you know, because she was telling us all sorts of stories about obviously her time in Doctor Who, but but everything. Um, yeah. She got stuck on a rock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, she wanted to make this short film about that and uh, because she was stuck on a rock, but she was kind of scared of the height of it. And she was, you know, and that was kind of funny and fun to hear. And... There was only time for one question to be asked after everything she told, and it was it was me. And I think, did you get the vibe that I annoyed a lot of people because I didn't ask anything about Doctor Who? Uh, no, <laughs> I got a slight vibe from some people, but it, I would want to know more about this short film. And she was just talking about that, and that was that was really good. See, that's nice because like all these Doctor Who stories, surely a lot of people have heard them over and over again from these people, and like. Like the show doesn't really, it might define them to an extent, mm. but so a lot of these people they only did it for so many weeks of their lives. You know, there's a lot, there's a lot more to them. Yeah, and it's it's like you know, uh, like any normal person, one of my favorite bands is the Beatles, right? You know, and it's like you know when you hear Paul McCartney talk about his time in the Beatles, mm. no, and he's still enthusiastic, and you know he tells the stories interesting. You haven't got a problem with that, but it's sort of like I've heard it before. But of course we have because. There's only so much he can tell f- yeah. from a period in the 50s and the 60s, which was many, many years ago. We've heard everything. Yeah. And what's, what gets frustrating is time and time again, when these stories get retold, sometimes they're retold a bit differently. And it gets to the point where you, you're like, hang on, I know my facts better than you and you were there. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was the thing. because I remember when uh, I came across this uh, this documentary, which must have been done around 1987, uh, George Harrison had uh, just done one of his solo records called Cloud Nine, and they had a bit of a, the BBC must have done a bit of a documentary about it. So obviously they were talking about that album and him recording it, but they were talking about his time in the Beatles and his earlier solo work and stuff. And I've forgotten the chap's name, but at the time he was a really well-respected biographer of the Beatles, and he'd written this book called Twist and Shout, and he was being interviewed, and he said, um, "If we want to know the truth about the Beatles, we need to." talk about george harrison so we need to talk to george harrison about it and the person interviewing said well why is that and she said what he said well john can't tell us because at that point he'd be he'd uh, that was when he'd been murdered seven years prior so it's like john can't tell us ringo can't tell us and he's like what do you mean ringo can't tell you and he's just like well he doesn't know he wasn't really paying attention. He played the drums, he drank the drink, he smoked the drugs, and that was it. He wasn't really involved beyond that. So, like, oh, okay. And he went, George is the one who tells it to you straight. Paul McCartney rewrites history all the time. Mm-hmm. Just like, oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I suppose that goes into it. Yeah. Anyway, we've gone off on a tangent. Um, back to the rescue. Oh, yeah. Rescued the conversation there. <laughs> um, There's some good um, shots in this. We have they've bothered to make a model shot. Mm-hmm. Um, we had the shot in the cavern of the Doctor and Ian. Should we talk about that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Go on. Okay. So they're walking along the ledge, and uh, because they can't get out because Coquillian has destroyed the entrance. With his, I think it's a mining tool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, was that right? Mm-hmm. Um, so they're walking along the ledge, and there's this beast below, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and um, there's these kind of handles on the ledge, and one of them, one of them is a trap, isn't it? Mm. Um, we did get a wide shot as well of them on the ledge up top, um, and a shot of the. Um, creature down below mm. i thought that was a nice shot yeah yeah i mean the the production values i think are really good i mean when um barbara and ian have um yes barbara and ian when uh when they've gone out of the cave and they can you know they're, they're up on high and they're looking down 
where the ship is and everything. We've got that shot. Um, oh, I didn't like that Ian just left Barbara there. He was like, you coming, Barbara? Yeah, I'll just walk ahead for a bit and leave you with this guy. Well, no, I mean, the thing... <laughs> I know what you mean, but the thing is he's got to... He's got to stoop to get into the cave. Yeah. It's not as Very if, okay. you know, he's just he's just waltzing away and can't look behind him. You know, he has got to physically get awkwardly into the cave. So I know what you mean, but I can kind of kind of forgive him for that. And she just gets pushed off. <laughs> he's just casually... Well, yeah. Mm. But I thought I thought that shot of them when uh, when Ian and Barbara are on top of the cliff and they're they're looking down on the spaceship, you know, yeah. how that shot is how that shot is achieved, I thought was good. And as you said, that long shot uh, when Doctor and Ian are, are on the ledge and they look, you know, and there's the monster uh, beneath them and the sets and everything like that. It's it's got good production values. It's um, it does look good. Yeah, and one of the mechan one of the handles is a trap, and the swords are coming out. Mm. These razor sharp swords, kind of pushing Ian over. Um, obviously, the the swords aren't quite foolproof because he could just kind of part your legs and let them let them go through you, <laughs> or, he, or you could just kind of climb round as Ian did. Uh-huh. Um, so they probably could have came out a bit quicker. Yeah, but but, uh, but it's all it's also almost like they were. They were slowly pushing you off the ledge mm-hmm. to kind of feed the creature below. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so I suppose I mean the there the, are the elements of the story. Don't think about it too much because when um, Ian is telling the Doctor that his encounter with Coquillian, and the the Doctor goes, "Oh, did he have teeth and hands like claws?" So he knows what Coquillian looks like. Uh, which is nothing like, and it's established that the, the Doctor has been to the planet Dido before, so he knows yeah. what the people of the planet look like, and they just look like normal normal humans. They, they don't look like yes, and also he, the Doctor points out that what Quillian wears is purely ceremonial, mm. as well. Yeah, um, yeah. So there's aspect, so there's 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 elements of the story just go with the flow. Don't think about it too much because there, there are few things you go. Oh, hang on a minute. That doesn't quite make sense. Just go with the flow. It's fine. Because really what this is, it uh, because the previous story was the Dalek invasion of Earth and that ended with Susan leaving. So she's one of the first companions to, to leave the show. And Vicky is going to be her replacement. Um, really what this is, is, a, is a, obviously it's a way of introducing Vicky, but if you look at everything that they give Maureen O'Brien to do as an actress... You know, um, elation, lack of confidence, emotion, humour. You know, everything that someone would do with a character. It's all jam-packed within 50 minutes. Um, Maureen O'Brien plays the part, you know, really well. You know, this vulnerable, um, you know, this vulnerable young woman. Uh, And essentially she becomes a surrogate granddaughter for the Doctor. Yeah, um, I'm not too sure. I like the way she kind of finds her strength in this story because uh, she goes through some tough stuff, and she kind of um, there's a terrible scene with Sandy, the creature, mm-hmm. which is heartbreaking for her. Yeah, um, I don't know. I feel like the way that the that they all kind of, kind of, tell her to get over it. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like I feel like the way she feels and is reacting is completely justified. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I didn't like the way they were nurturing her and trying to um, get it to just or just see um, our point of view. We would have done. We would have killed the doctors. I would have probably killed it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I th- it's funny. I know, I know what you mean because the elements of how that's played out, which I think is done well. So following that, uh, Vicky and Barbara are a bit awkward with each other. Yeah. Uh, and then they, they, they kind of reconcile and get over it. That aspect of it I like. Yeah, but the, the whole thing of the Doctor just going, goodness gracious, you shouldn't go on like this. She was only looking after for your safety. It's like, yeah, but she killed an innocent creature, which yeah. I regarded as a pet and I loved. Do you think that's a very old-fashioned 
kind of manner. Like just, I just, you know, just telling someone how to feel. <laughs> Possibly, uh, I mean, it. Uh, I think it is one of those things where you look back and go, hmm, "Don't just be a bit of an arse." Um, so that aspect of it, yeah, I think is a little bit off. But yeah. the rest of it, you know, seeing uh, Vicky cry, Barbara realizing her mistake and being awkward about it. Um, yeah. The fact that I guess that must have been devastating for Barbara as well. But. Yeah, because she's really so. What she did tell her to stop, though, and at that point, I understood. Mm. I would, I, I would have held off and be like, "Okay, wait, what?" <laughs> but uh, it's really, so really at the end of the day, I think it's the doctor's reaction mm. to it rather than rather than anything else. Rather than Barbara's, but mm. uh, how? But how the rest of it's written emotionally and how the rest of the characters play. Uh, play it and everything I think is fine yeah. it's just the doctor's just going goodness gracious you shouldn't go on like this at all uh, just going I'll do one Sandy will you? was murdered <laughs> devastating yeah, yeah. Um, so it's, it's a great reveal of the mystery when we hear this voice recording from is, is it Bennett yes mm-hmm. um, you can't come in tries, yes you can, <laughs> it does sound like a tape recording and he goes in and kind of the plot thickens. He finds the record and he finds the the very blatant lever that opens the hatch in the door on the floor. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah, pieces of the puzzle are starting to come together. Mm-hmm. Uh, which leads to one of my all-time favorite scenes in Doctor Who, um, which is the scene between the Doctor and Bennett. Um, so we go, there's this hall, I really like, I mean, it's simply done, but it's very effective, it's very atmospheric. It's atmospheric. Yeah. That's that's the word. Mm. It's, this is probably, it's like the, the, the whole, yeah, the atmosphere and the sound, it's done so well. It's like, it's one of my favourite sequences with Hartnell. Yeah. Somehow. It, and yeah, I totally agree, I'm exactly the same, this is one of my all-time favourite scenes. Because of the atmosphere and the sound design, the production design, everything, and I think the light, the light, yeah, just the everything scale. comes together to really, because it's dramatic. The, um, the Doctor has worked out what's going on. That Coquillian is just this fiction, and there's really Bennett, um, and he confronts him, and it's just those two people in the room. The Doctor in that entire scene, you know, and because the, the Doctor's off his back foot, you know. Um, Bennett is basically dominating the whole proceeding. You know, he's constantly advancing towards the Doctor and the Doctor's having to constantly, you know, step back. The Doctor is in a... is talking and dealing with a murderer. So Mm. uh, it's revealed in this scene that what had happened was Bennett had murdered one of the crew members. He'd effectively been, been put on trial and to save his own neck, he murdered everyone, including... All the inhabitants of Dido, because it had a small population, about 100 or something. Don't look too closely into that. Um, yeah, okay. You know, but <laughs> but um, murdered everyone to save his own skin. Vicky hadn't been aware that Bennett uh, had murdered anyone. So he concocted all this story that actually uh, the Didoans had, um, had, had, had killed everybody. He was the only survivor. Uh, he, and she would have backed his story up. He, yeah, exactly. And there's all this, so all this is coming out. And if if Bennett was willing to do all that, I mean, as the doctor says, you you killed an entire planet to save your own skin. You're insane. Um, it's a very elaborate plan, though. All this constantly getting into disguise and going back and forward and under the floor. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know, you can't come in. Um, but, you know, it worked. It was good. Uh, but this scene, I think, is really good, it, um, and it's one of my all-time favorites because of how it doesn't matter how many times I've seen this story. It just I'm really gripped by it, and you feel like the Doctor is in absolute mortal danger. I mean, mm. and then um, it's great because for once, it's, it's like Ian's not the action man yeah. of the story, mm-hmm. um, which he. Um, Traditionally was. Yeah. Um, and. Ah, oh, you, you might have. Because I've always thought that one of the. 
weakest elements of this story was that suddenly at the end we have these two Dadoans suddenly arrive. Yeah, it had their faces been kind of shrouded in shadows or not seen. Mm. Um, and, or perhaps wearing similar masks. That would have added to the mystery mm-hmm. and uh, the curiosity about them. But it's almost like two Thals have just turned up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But it, it's not its not in terms of the look that I have a problem with. It's just the fact that they just suddenly turn up. Yeah. Uh, and I, I've thought for a long time of maybe it would have been effective if Ian had arrived at that moment and then saved the day. But actually, you've convinced me, no, because Doctor Who had done that too many times and that was quite the norm. The fact that the Didoans have been sort of like skulking in the shadows and some of them have survived... Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, probably works a lot better and is a lot more and, and aids the, the creepy atmospheric element of the story. So, yeah, actually, they do maintain that because these two characters they never speak and then they're never seen of again. Yeah, to, to the main character. So, actually, in some respects, I think yeah, you've actually convinced me that is a much better way to to go about it. Mm-hmm. But going back to that scene, because uh, so there's this whole cat and mouse thing with the Doctor being in real danger to what's going on, and Bennett starts strangling the doctor to death he's only he's only prevented from murdering the doctor um yeah oh his death that's so good yeah well uh because uh he's shocked uh he thought i killed you all randomly decided to top on a chair (laughs) yeah just not in front of the body just as you do i'll just randomly (laughs) top this chair uh and then backs off and then fold you know and then falls down a cabin and dies um, I don't mind that. It's just the randomly. Why is he tossed that chair over and just randomly do? He doesn't. The thing is, because he doesn't. He doesn't do it in their direction. No, he just throws it. He just. I'll chuck it randomly to the side. That'll stop them getting to me. Yeah, weird. Um, but you know, whatever. Um, the rest of it seems really, really good. And as I said, it's it, what really sells it is because. Uh, Ray Barrett, who who plays Bennett, um, plays the part really well and is really chilling in that mo- scene. And you you know, the, as I said, the Doctor's in mortal danger in there because he's dealing with a with a psychopath, really. Mm. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, works really well. Yeah, and then of course, and then we end with, uh, and again, I, I like how this is handled. Um, you know, we're back in the TARDIS. The Doctor's regained consciousness. Um, needs to have a word with Vicky. Explains the situation. She doesn't have any anyone anymore. Everyone yeah. wants to sort of bring her back into the TARDIS. And it, yeah, I like that how they're all on, all on the same page. They don't even need to say it. Yeah, and uh, I think again it's handled handled believably. Um, and I like you know, Vicky's unsure, given everything that she's you know experienced, and she. F- you know, found out that the one person she'd been trusting for a long time actually was responsible for murdering her father. She's now an orphan. Um, you know, and it's it's sort of like tender and nicely done. Yeah. Um. So that's it for me in terms of the talk and the story. Uh, how about you? Um. Uh, no, no negatives about the story. Um. Had it been longer, maybe that would have been detrimental. Like the Hobbit, <laughs> as we talked about last week. Yeah. yeah, don't make the rescue a three-parter. Uh, and perhaps if the what were the natives called? Didoans. Uh, Didoans. I was going to say the Coquillians. It's <laughs> not right. Perhaps if we hadn't seen their faces, it would have been a bit more mysterious. Um, and of course, we had that sequence where. They come in and trash the radio because the flight ship, the the rescue ship's arriving. So would the rescue ship arrive, but not know where? Yes, because Bennett said that they'd have to guide the rescue ship down, didn't they? Mm-hmm. So of course the rescue ship won't be able to find the possibly the wreckage anyway. Yeah. Um, and the, I think the doctor did say that um, they they'd make sure that the rescue ship would would never find them. Yeah. Yeah, which is understandable given the fact that you know the the, the last time someone arrived, most of their people were slaughtered. Okay. Oh yeah. Um, so That's it's like it. yeah, t- totally understandable. Aye. <laughs> um, but yeah, of course, I think if I was to rate it a uh, good average or bad, it was good. It was great. Um. I think I would rate it average. 
Um, mm-hmm. Because I want to. No, uh, because um, I, I, it, it feels a little bit harsh, but uh, basically what it is, it's sort of... I do enjoy the episode. I think there are good, really good things about it, but there's just certain elements of it I don't think quite work. But there are, as I said, it has one of my all-time favourite scenes of William of William Hart, which is the scene between him and Bennett. Uh, Vicky is a really good character. Maureen O'Brien's a delight. Nothing to do with Caroline Ford, uh, but um, Susan started off really good, but became actually quite a, an annoying and weak character. Bit of a hindrance. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's it's really weird because she's this great character with you know full of mystery, and then the writers completely balls up her character. So by the time she leaves, you go, thank God she's gone. And then they write this even in a final story. <laughs> yeah, although although the last scene is really good, but um, yeah. Um, and then they create this character who's clearly a grand, like a surrogate granddaughter, and they write her much better. Yeah. You know, go figure. But um, so yeah, the, the, there are great elements to do with the story. One or two things that don't quite work. So that's the reason why I've, I've I don't know, I've I've lowered it a little bit to average. Um, maybe that is a bit harsh. Oh, mm. I think so, but fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll leave it at that because I'll probably be humming on a harring, just going, "No, it's good. No, it's not. No, yeah." Mm. <laughs> I do like it still. I mean, yeah. at the end of the day, I'm not saying it's awful because it clearly isn't. Yeah, there's not much you can um, you can say about a two parter as well, mm. I guess. But yeah. Um, so, in terms of listeners' responses, so just before we go into that, um, social media, uh, most people are uh, getting in contact with us on Twitter. That is the best place. Uh, so, get in contact with us at Podcast Bell. Yes. Uh, we're also available on Instagram at Cloyster underscore Bell. And we have our own website, com. So, listeners' responses. John Porter says, Superb atmosphere in part two. The scenes in the temple are excellent. One of my favourites. Doesn't outstay its welcome and gets a lot done with a superb cast in its brief running time. Uh, John House says, I love the rescue. It's unlike any other story from the Hartnell era. Billy's so good in it, everyone is quite good in it actually, and the climax is kind of ambiguous and weird, which I love. We get Vicky, who's a significant upgrade over Susan, which I've just said, and that great lead into the Romans. Yeah, I, I always loved that uh, that episode um, end, you know, with the TARDIS toppling over the cliff. I think that's great model yeah. work, and I love the, the sound uh, design of it as well. Ah, oh, right, okay. Uh, the Siege of Jeff said... An often overlooked great, Hartnell shines throughout. Vicky is fantastic addition to the cast, whose chemistry with Hartnell is immediately on screen and behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. And Ray yeah. Barrett gives a fantastic supporting performance. It's bliss, top ten for me. Um, we did get a response which has confused me a bit, which says, I love the scene where we find out the reason for the Mary Celeste's emptiness. But I th- that's the chase. Right, okay. Maybe one of the, uh, maybe listeners got uh, a bit confused with one of the stories we were talking about. But <laughs> um, talking about that scene in the chase, yeah, it's uh, finally it's it's revealed that the reason why the Mary Celeste was abandoned because the Daleks appeared. Uh, Does this sway your opinion on the rescue at all, Liam? Uh, yes, it's good now. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, thanks very much for listening. That's our talk on the rescue. Um, we did do a poll. Oh, yes, sorry, Rob. Uh, I did accidentally read the result out last week, though. Oh, is that what you're reading? Well, <laughs> yeah. well uh, do, it, do it again. What was it? 77% thought it was good. Yep, good memory. Um, yep, 77.3% thought it was good. 13.6 average, 9.1 bad out of 22 votes. So, yeah, majority of people thought it was good. Excellent. Glad to hear it. Um, what's happening next week, Rob? I've got no idea. <laughs> If we finally come to the point where we forgot to plan ahead for the following week. <laughs> yeah, we planned something quite well, uh, which is trying to get ahead and uh, record two podcasts all in one block. Or yeah. batch. Maybe that's the issue. Um, batch, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but then having... Well, obviously, we will be around next week reviewing a Doctor Who story. It'll be a surprise for you, as it will be a surprise for us. 
Uh, so yes. stick around, tune in next week, and find out what it's a mystery. Yeah, what the hell we'll be talking about. Yep, look forward to it. Hope. Cool. Well, bye everyone. Bye everyone. See you around. The cloister bell? Yes. What's that? Well, it's a sort of communications device reserved for wild catastrophes and sudden calls to man the battle stations. That's the cloister bell. Don't worry about that for now. It's not really terribly significant. The cloister bell? Oh, no.